Hey Rewatchers, Keith here. We're excited and getting ready to jump back into Season 6 coverage, so this week we're releasing another Adrian Tape. This week we present Season 2, Tape 2, Side B of the Adrian Tapes, where Adrian talks about his experiences doing the second season of the show, from filming long action scenes in Revenge of the Sword, the creation of Maurice and the ins and outs of International Co-Finance Productions, talking racial issues with immortal Carl Robinson, and going sword to sword with Nia Peebles. We hope you enjoy this Adrian Tape. Happy listening. The next show, Revenge of the Sword, brought back Dustin and Gwyn as a martial art movie star hell-bent for destruction. Although I think it wasn't exactly the best show of the season, again, another turning point was made. When I first saw the script, there were 11 action hand or sword fights to do in a six-day shooting schedule. That was impossible, and I felt that the writers were beginning to go a little overboard on the action sequences, and were missing the point on what Highlander really was. Although we cut down the number of action sequences in the episode and made a decision to mix more history and romance and action in the future, I still performed the longest on-screen fight I'd done to date on the series. This was the fight at the end of the episode in the crematorium against two of Leong's bodyguards, one of which actually was my Sifu, or teacher for those of you who are not familiar with martial arts terminology. The fight actually lasted for a minute and ten seconds. Now that might not seem long, but when you include kicks, sweeps, punches and falls, it's a pretty long time. What made it seem even longer was that it was filmed for a couple of times as one entire sequence. Yeah. I got my workout for the day. Rum Feel Life was one of my favorites of the season. It dealt with an issue that we hadn't touched upon yet. That of racism. Not only was it, though, a white and black thing, but also an issue between people of the same color. When Charlie DeSalvo came in contact with Carl Robinson, played by Bruce Young, this is what happened. DeSalvo! Now, what kind of name is that for a black man? It's the name of somebody who's half black and half Italian, man. Oh, I got that. So which half for you? Both. Because that depends on who you're talking to, huh? Hey, you want to talk about it, man? I've been talking about it all my life. It must be hard being a white man in a black man's body. Ain't nobody talks to me like that. I just did. What is it with you two? Hmm? It's a black thing. It's a black thing was a line that came out during the read-through when we were all trying to analyze why these two men were going at each other. And Bruce and Phil just turned around and said, well, it's a black thing. As often happens in read-throughs, lines that actors say or thoughts that they bring to a role are incorporated into the story because, well, an actor lives the part and a writer sometimes lives the story. Something that we didn't want this show to be was a racial issue, but an issue about immortality. In this context, it was a very fine line because we were dealing with a man who had been a slave and had suffered hardships because of prejudices. But I felt the Max point of view to Carl and what Carl should understand was something totally different. You could do whatever you want, be whoever you want. You can live your dream. Most people grow old and die before they can do that. But if you want to be a thief, then go ahead. In fact, the show was nominated for Best Episode in an Hour Drama at the Genie Awards, and Bruce Young was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Epitaph for Tommy had a couple of interesting elements, even though we were pretty stressed out working a six-day show. Firstly, I was working with a man who, before becoming an actor, had been in many professional fights. 
Rowdy Ruddy Piper, as he was then known. This was apparent while I was doing the sword fight when Bob Anderson, the swordmaster, said to him, Ruddy, Ruddy, you've got to pull back. The fight's beginning to look very real. To which he replied, well, it feels real when I fight Adrian. I can't help it. Well, it's always a challenge finding a new opponent. I almost think by osmosis we were given the result of that by the quickening, which was one of my favorites of that season. In The Fighter, we had another great guest star, Bruce Weiss, who played Sully, the fast-talking fight promoter, who always managed, much like Amanda did, to get McLeod into trouble. I'm saying I need help. Look at me. She comes to take an order. I can't even remember my name. Have you talked to women before? She's not a woman. She's the woman. Some girls are just some girls. With them, I'm fine. With her, I'm an idiot. Well, what exactly do you want me to do, Sully? I want you to tell me what to say, how to be, what to do. Come on! I'm asking you this one favor. I will never ask you another thing. Sully wasn't a bad immortal, but he crossed the line between right and wrong. As many of us do, but he caused the deaths of at least two or three people that Mac knew about. Here we saw for one of the first times Mac dealing with a moral issue. Does he allow his friend to walk away? Or try stopping him from harming anyone else? And even towards the end of the episode, everyone was wondering whether McLeod would take his head or not. Well... The line between right and wrong was crossed again in Color of Authority... This was another pivotal episode in year two, because this was the first time that there was a discernible rift between McLeod and Richie. Richie was uh, defending a young girl who, like normal, he knew nothing about. In fact, she'd murdered her husband. Hot in her trail was a bounty hunter called Mako. The problem here was that Mako made partial sense to McLeod, and the rift that happened between Richie and Mac... I think can be summed up by Mako's words. And remember, McLeod, all the separatists from the beast is the law... Many people have asked me why McLeod sent Richie away at the end of the episode. Well, I believe it was for a couple of reasons. The main one being that since McLeod had trained Richie and had taught him the rules of how to exist as an immortal, Richie had chosen, as do many pupils, to ignore the advice of their teacher. McLeod lived by a set of rules, rules that meant the difference between life and death. When Richie made his own decision to kill Mako, he broke that link that existed between him and his teacher. Since Mac realized that they were both immortal beings who at some point may have to fight each other, he also realized that now the pupil thought on his own, he should exist on his own as well and understand what that meant. It didn't mean Mac was shunning him, but a bond had to be broken so that they could go on to the next stage of their relationship. The next show, Bless the Child, was probably not one of my favorite episodes of that year, but we did have some fun shooting it. You hungry? Yeah, hungry. I could eat a horse. Well, it's not a horse this morning, Charlie. It's trout. Oh, careful, it's hot. Trout and jam, man? Yeah. What's my Don't you want it? Well, not for breakfast. Come on. Do you know the nutritional value in oh. trout? Actually, I enjoyed playing jokes on Phil, and sometimes even during a take. What do you got? She stopped here. Well, how can you tell, man? There's no sign. It's a wild berries. It's just been picked. She came before. Huh. No, don't. They're poisonous. Just kidding. Very funny, McLeod. This show also had the first use of a wild animal in the shape of a 400-pound bear. And I tell you, it was the first time I've ever seen a crew obey the command, quiet, please. You could hear a pin drop when the 400-pound grizzly walked through the door. In fact, I'll tell you another little secret. He could only be used on his close-ups as he wouldn't come out of his trailer. Unholy Alliance became 
Well, a real groundbreaker for Highlander because it was the first two-parter that we'd ever done. But also because it had two great guest stars in the form of Roland Gift, who came back to play Xavier, and Peter Hudson, my arch-mortal enemy, who came back to play James Horton. Are you sure he'll come? He'll come. He still trusts Dawson. And Dawson trusts our young friend here. Isn't that so? He'll be here. And so will I. I guess they figured they both wanted a piece of Duncan McLeod, and what better way to do it than to team up together? These two episodes also caused a change in the Highlander lineup, putting on hold the relationship between McLeod and Charlie. The reasons for this were twofold. First, the writers couldn't exactly see what Charlie would do in France, and secondly, they also had to deal with a content problem. Content is the word that's used for the restrictions put on the series under the co-production contract that Highlander works under. This states the restrictions of the amount of Canadians, Americans, and Europeans that were allowed to work per episode. So, in the second part of this two-parter, we created the quirky comedic character of Maurice, played by Michel Modot as the cheeky French chef who lived on the barge next door, but who happened to be occupying the clouds while he was away. What's going on here? Who are you? More to the point, what are you doing on this barge? I'm having a shower. I can see that. What are you doing on this boat? I own it. Of course. McLeod, my friend. I think I'd remember a friend like you. But I'm Maurice, from the boat next door. Everyone knows Maurice. Does everyone find you in their bathroom? All I took was a little water. Oh. Ah, that. Another weekend, it would have been vinegar. We needed some comic relief against all the darkness. After all, with a title like Unholy Alliance, it didn't exactly ring of a light-hearted comedy. This show also saw the relationship between McLeod and Dawson grow a little tighter. Their relationship up to this point had been that of two people who liked each other but had a hard time staying together because of who they were. But in Unholy Alliance Part 2, Dawson proves to McLeod that he is an honorable friend by seemingly killing his brother-in-law, James. It's finished, James! I'll light you a candle. The next two shows, The Vampire and Warmonger, went back to more of the idea of McLeod being a detective. In The Vampire, he was trying to find Nicholas Ward, and in Warmonger, he was helping a lady in distress. The Vampire, in my opinion, was probably one of the more interesting of the two simply because of the flashbacks that reminded me of an old English play of the type I used to watch on TV when I was a kid. Yet, this one had a little twist. The bad guy had his head cut off at the end. Dennis Berry went all out to create the quickening, and I think he did a very good job. It was probably one of the best ones we'd had up to that point, apart from the one in Epitaph for Tommy. In Warmonger, Matt was playing the role he played in year one, although now the interesting twist was the dilemma of a promise Mac had made to Drake in the past. That meant breaking that promise to stop him from killing again, one of the more interesting moral dilemmas during year two. The next show, Pharaoh's Daughter, was one of my favorites for several reasons. 
One, the character of Maurice was well underway and his off-handed way of forcing himself into McLeod's company is apparent even when Maurice meets Nefertiri, played by Nia Peoples. This is okay, it's Maurice. He lives on the boat next door. And bonjour to you, mademoiselle. Bonjour, Maurice. I knew it. The minute I saw you step out of the car, you have a certain je ne sais quoi that no French woman possesses. Maurice, Nefertiri's tired. She just got into town. Maybe you're hungry. I just made a cocoa vin for lunch. My mother's recipe. No, she's not hungry. Secondly, up to this point, we'd hardly had any female immortals on Highlander except for Amanda and Felicia Martins of Philadelphia. But Nia Peoples played a role really well and was probably more adept with the sword than some male actors I fought with. I basically saw this episode as a love story, one that was destined for failure, given the differences between what Nefertiri believed and what McLeod believed. You make love to me and then you betray me. Betray you? Yes. You, you wish me to get in his home and kill his wife. This is not about you, Duncan. It wasn't about Angela either, was it? Get out. I guess at this point of the season, everything was going in twos. First we'd had the two detective shows, and now it came the two romantic ones. Because in Legacy, although the story dealt with the recovery of Rebecca's crystal, it also dealt with the continuing relationship between McLeod and Amanda, and revealed Amanda's true feelings for McLeod. However, for me, the best chemistry Elizabeth and I had was sometimes ad-libbing certain things, such as what I call the frying pan scene. You get him? He doesn't have the crystal. Looks like they got it. Never seen you use a frying pan before. Well, Elizabeth and I were always having fun. <laughs> Particle Sun is what I call the return of Richie. The last time McLeod saw Richie, the parting was not on good terms. I think the writers didn't want at the first meeting to be too heavy, so they put in the comedic element of Maurice. This is Maurice, who lives on the barge next door. Richie's an old friend. We're getting older fast. How are you doing? Vitamins. The boy needs iron. I'll keep it in mind. Uh, Richie and I have uh, a few things to catch up on. I understand. You don't have to ask Maurice twice. Red meat and red wine is also good. Maurice, thanks. Any friend of yours? I know. What we needed to see in this show was that the camaraderie between Mac and Richie was still there. That no matter what had passed, they were still friends. And I think this was achieved in the final scene. Something bothering you? Just hide. I should have whacked this son of a bitch. Yeah. But I saw him first. <laughs> the last two shows of the season, Counterfeit Part 1 and Part 2, were special to me for two reasons. One, my wife, Melani, played in Counterfeit Part 1, and two, my ex-wife on screen, Alexander Vandenhoek, played in Counterfeit Part 2. Melani playing Lisa Mion and Alex playing Lisa Mion after a little surgery. This show also had my nemesis for the year, James Horton, showing up again to give Mac a few more problems. Beginning to wonder if he'd never die. 
The setup that Horton did to McLeod of allowing a seemingly innocent kid to die and totally shatter his confidence in his judgment until he could bring out his main plan of attack, the Tessa lookalike, was well thought out and well written. However, the end, we felt, was wrong. Originally, it was written that after all that Horton did to get to McLeod, he simply walked onto the barge after Lisa had shot him and took his head. I tried to point out that a man as resourceful, devious, and sick-minded as Horton would probably want to do it in a much more significant place. So we came up with the idea of the cemetery. However, there was some resistance as to changing the scene. It was late in the season, and people were tired after probably what turned out to be Highlander's toughest year. We discussed the point for a week or two, and then finally all agreed that the cemetery scene was better, and it was here that Tessa should be finally put to rest. With nothing holding him in Paris now, McLeod decided it was time to head back to the States. And the idea was to get rid of any things that he and Tessa had shared. I know you're going to miss it. Just a boat. But it was home. Why are you giving it up? More and Tessa too long. It's time to move on. Where to? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere. You coming? So Richie and McLeod, or Batman and Robin, rode off into the sunset into new adventures. Never to see the barge again. Or so we thought. Thanks for listening to that Adrian tape with us. We can't wait to bring you more season six coverage, so stay tuned. We hope everyone is doing well and keeping safe. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.